This time on PlayStation Rumble, we tempt fate by flying kites in storms and walking on train tracks reborn as we play and discover what remains of Edith Finch. Hello and welcome to PlayStation Rumble, where each episode we explore the PlayStation library one game at a time. My name is Jamie and joining me is Tony. Hi. And Joshua. What's up? If you want to skip straight to the discussion about what remains of Edith Finch, uh, the timestamps will be in the show notes. Our next episode is going to be PlayStation's Ape Escape. So if you want to join along with that, that will be releasing on the 15th of July. And there's just a little bit of time to find out how your weeks have been. Joshua. Pretty good. I just downed a large coffee, so I'm going to try and contain my energy for this episode. So we'll (laughs) see how far we get. But other than that, my week's been pretty decent. In terms of gaming, I'm still kind of in that funk. I bounced off of Deathloop a few days ago because I kept running into soft locks and crashes which i can i can tolerate that but with death loop if you get a soft lock and you have to reboot you lose your whole run for the day and that's a that's a fairly substantial that could be a substantial amount of progress depending on where you are so i just got to the point where i was like this is just so frustrating so i just hit uninstall (laughs) um i've been going through some of the library on the new PS Plus. It's it's pretty good. Uh, go for extra, not premium. Yeah. I played through Minute yesterday, and then I started Padapon Remastered. I'm not sure if I'll go for the platinum on it because there's one trophy <laughs> that's real. That, he will. He's, he's dude, gonna get the there's platinum. one there's one rng trophy that's just super major grind but i am a veteran of the game and i really like it so but other than that nothing's really been uh grabbing me i did i was excited to that the the next gen versions of resident evil 2 came out because i did buy that recently and i waited to play it because i knew that was coming out so i have that installed i might give that a shot and I also started the Iki Island DLC for Ghost of Tsushima. It was nice that it was released on the service because I wasn't paying $10 for the PS5 version. Is one minute that, is it like a top-down thing We have a minute for each run of your life and you're trying to sort yeah. of slowly improve? Is it a PS3 game? It's a PS4 game. It's an indie game by Devolver Digital, or it's published by Devolver Digital. And it's kind of like... It's kind of like a classic Zelda game, and you have 60 seconds to progress um, whenever you find items or you get upgrades. That stuff carries with you, but your goal is to just figure out how to progress within those 60 seconds, because then you die and you go back. So it's it's pretty decent, pretty decent, super short. That seems really stressful. <laughs> it's not too bad. It sounds like Majora's Mask mixed with like WarioWare. Yeah, but the game is you can beat it in like three hours. And there there is a Jamie mode too. 
<laughs> I, all right, let's address this in the room. I didn't mind Jamie being a bit scared of horror games. Oh, he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a wuss when it comes to horror games. I lent into that. I don't know why like using a strategy guide or playing on easy has become synonymous with my name. Because, because you haven't played a Souls game, Jamie. <laughs> because difficulty scares you. <laughs> I like challenge. Because you bragged about being a SpongeBob game. I didn't brag about it. I informed you and the community. There's one boss in minute, just one, and that's okay. it. And if you die, you respawn at your current progress in the boss, so you don't even have to redo the whole thing. I do, I do do that thing where, um, like, uh, the anxiety, like my adrenaline goes so high up when I'm playing a boss, even if it is on like a cartoony platform. Like, <laughs> Jack and Axel was okay, but other things where I'm just like, I don't want something like big and in my face and like with lots of dynamic movement and. Uh, but to each their own. But minute minute's been fun. I just haven't really found a game yet where I can really sink my teeth into it. Because uh, minute's so short that you just kind of play it and then it's over. I mean, it's in the name, isn't it? Uh, Tony, have you been digging into the PS Plus library recently? Uh, yeah, much like you, I've kind of been hopping around ever since. Ever since I beat um my two big beats of this year, which were uh. Tushima and uh, Elden Ring. I played through E7, and then because mm. uh, I've been wanting to get back into the series, and I felt like playing a, a little more JRPG-ish. And then thanks to the extra, I can play E8 and 9 because they're both on there. They're both on my library too. I guess one of the other big things that came out this week was uh, Shredder's Revenge, TMNT. Yes. Mm. Is it good? It's just like the arcade games. So, yes. It looks really fun. I've had my eye on it. I haven't quite made the jump yet, but I might I might have to. It doesn't reinvent the wheel or anything, but it's still as frustrating fun as the, you know, old arcade games were, or the old uh, beat-em-ups were. It's made from the same team that remade, uh, that made uh, Streets of Rage 4. So, um, I think mm-hmm. Dot Emu. Yeah, they also did... They did a couple other games. They did uh, the remaster of Wonder Boy the Dragon's Trap. I don't yeah. know if you guys played that, but that one was also really good. They're really good at taking old games or old ideas and just modernizing them and just making really good games. I grew up with the Ninja Turtles, and of course, when I heard that, uh, I was kind of on the fence about it. I didn't really pay attention to it. And then when I started paying attention to it, I learned that some of the... Um, some of our th- or most of the original voice cast came back to voice to, uh, to lend their voices in the game. Whoa! Uh, this you know, um, minus Shredder because you know Uncle Phil passed away uh, a few years back. But you know, uh, it's a nostalgia trip. Basically, it'd be a cool little multiplayer game. And I also had had uh, picked up Tales of Arise because it was like twenty bucks at Best Buy. And oh, so cheap, yeah. So I've kind of been playing through that. Is that one any good, Tony? Yeah, it's. I like it. I mean, I like the Tales games, so it's kind of confusing because I have like I'm playing games with three different control types. So when I'm play, I try to play East, and then I try to go to this Tales of Arise. I kind of mix up the combat buttons, but otherwise, mm. you know, I'm just slowly playing through it. Tales of Arise is another one on my list. Um, you'll have to keep me posted if you if you're enjoying it, or if you're like, you know, this game is the worst 
ever just just let me know man just let me know <laughs> those are the only two options <laughs> yeah those are the only those are don't you know jamie that in the gaming industry when it comes to opinions it either has to be the greatest <laughs> thing ever or the worst thing ever made you should know this i do i do okay so jamie uh now that i'm done how about you i have finished saints row the third look i've got nothing more to say about this game i've talked about it on the last two podcasts except for the fact that the final boss is the exact same as the final boss from Uncharted 2, which is notoriously the worst part of Uncharted 2, and maybe the whole series. Undoubtedly. It's such a weak, like from Naughty Dog, such a poor effort. I think they're probably aware of it, because you get to the big final boss, and he's like, nothing will destroy me, except for these crystals around the area that explode. So I think they were kind of maybe having fun with it, but it was still was just like a really weak gameplay. But yeah, Good good for what it was, and I have cleaned up some other things. I finished... So last year, I went back and I played The Walking Dead Season 1 again, and I played 2, 3, and 4 for the first time, which I'd never done, and I really enjoyed that whole series. I know people say the sort of quality goes up and down, but genuinely, I think it's all worth playing. I had a fantastic time with it. I played the DLC, uh, which is Mishona's Story, the uh, natural character from the show i think the only one or one of the only ones that's actually in the game from the actual uh, show and uh, comic books i played it for two reasons a it's a very easy platinum to just basically complete <laughs> all of the walking dead so joshua i'm coming for you i've got three uh, platinums and uh, one of them might be <laughs> one of them might be the walking dead and another might be rocket league but i'm still coming for you you're you got me i'm shaking i like mayo's on the list my name my name is mayo Mayo. one two and three baby let's go um and secondly because i wanted to close the door on that uh on that series before i started the wolf among us uh because the wolf among us 2 is coming somewhere down the line i've never played the wolf among us and it's the other one that people say is really good from um from the telltales so i don't know i don't know if you guys are sort of into the telltales or have been at some point um but I, I just really, I enjoyed The Walking Dead and I would recommend it to like most gamers and non-gamers. Telltale games have always been one of those, uh, I'll say genres for lack of a better term, where I just kind of see them at a distance and I see everybody enjoying them. And I look at gameplay and I just ask myself, is this even a game? Is this God of War? Is, <laughs> hey, I, I didn't bring it up. I didn't bring it up. <laughs> you brought it up. Don't look at me. No, it, they just don't look all that appealing to me. I'm sure their stories are great, but um, I don't typically play games mainly for a narrative. If a game mm. has a great narrative, that's you know that's awesome. But um, I'm more I'm more about the gameplay and um, just picking through dialogue options like a choose your own adventure. To me, that could be accomplished in a book or even Netflix. They have they have some shows like that where you just pick options. So they never really appealed to me. Or even just a Netflix show. I would say though, like narrative speaking, like story wise, one of the one of the best games I've ever played because they have that control over it, even though it is open. And sometimes the choices you're making aren't they're not all gonna affect outcomes, but they're all flavoring, you know, the notes of your story. You know that old expression, flavoring the notes of your story. I, I, yeah, classic <laughs> expression. Yeah, I've I've heard that since I was a child. They're, they're all filling in the detail. Um, so I I felt more for these characters than probably I have for most video games I've ever played, and I felt more connected to these characters more than most books that I read or um or shows that I watch because you do have 
that uh, you do have some fate over the characters and you have to be there making that that difficult decision or resolving that conflict rather than being a sort of passive observer of it. They're kind of like, a, um, in a sense, an evolution of the old point-and-click games. And I played through the first episode of our well, the first part of Walking Dead. And I think I played through like the, it's not really a sequel, but it's kind of like the segue between the first and the second one. And I didn't, I never went back to play the second one, but um, I played some of The Wolf Among Us and I enjoyed it. And there's the Batman Telltales, which I don't know if I've told you guys, I'm a pretty big Batman fan. Ooh, yay, let's go. Yes. <laughs> do you not notice, Jamie? I have like a, I have a fucking nice. Two-Face statue. Not Two-Face oh statue. I didn't, dude, let me, let, see me see, let me see, let me see. It's his coin flipping. You can't really see it's really bad. Dude, that is Boy. badass. That's the badass. That's awesome. Listeners, this goes from his like elbow nearly to his shoulder. Tony has officially become my idol. <laughs> this is the coin like normal. This is the coin fli- uh, flipping like right here. Wow. Dude, that is and, sick. And that's the fucked up part. The one thing, the one thing about Batman games is they do have really good stories. And I think w- before we get too much more off topic. We should put the focus back on narrative and talk about this episode's game, What Remains of Edith Finch. What Remains of Edith Finch is a first-person walking sim game released in 2017 by Annapurna Interactive, I think that's how you say it, and developed by Giant Sparrow. You take the role of Edith Finch, who sails to her childhood home on an isolated island, which she inherited after her relatives all succumbed to a family curse. You learn about the details of said curse through a series of flashbacks that you uncover as you explore the house. So Jamie, this game was your pick. And you were very excited for us to play it. So why don't you go into your personal history and why you selected it? Of course he was. It's about a bunch of children dying on road deaths. <laughs> <laughs> this, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about Jamie stereotypes. This was maybe the first that I uh, despise children in video games. We're talking about uh, you hate the twins and mm-hmm. Deadly Bermunition. Yeah. And then... Ethan Have Carter, you ever seen the kids died- in Cyberpunk? Fucking freaks. Ethan Carter, <laughs> he died a terrible death. It's just, you have a ringy theme. But you are right. I was very excited about this game. Basically, I played this game last year. I, I kind of knew in the ether it existed and that it was probably a sort of very Jamie game. I like story. <laughs> <laughs> and did, by that, did, I don't mean easy. Child death, you know. It, uh, I mean, on record, <laughs> Jamie mode means story. It doesn't mean easy. Jamie likes hard games. Let it let it be said that he likes hard games. But I thought that's probably a game I'll enjoy at some point. I think my, I played my first Walking Sim the year before that, which was um, Everybody's Gone to the Raptures and enjoyed that. So I, I thought this is going to be of the same ilk. I'll enjoy it. And I play through the thing pretty much in one sitting. And I absolutely loved it because I'm quite into things that are quite morbid but beautiful. Um, and it, 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 what remains of Edith Finch is one of the reasons we are all sitting here talking together because I played that game and I played Inside and those two games in succession made me go, I need a outlet to talk about video games. And those are the two games I attribute to sort of reaching out uh, to start a PlayStation podcast. 
So it's had a big influence on me. I still think about it a year on um, and I'm really excited to see what you guys think about it. I am, of course, playing it on one of the only ways you can on PS4. Um, Tony, what's your history of the game and how are you playing it? I played the PS4 version. I, uh, I've i heard of it. I had no idea what it was about, so I kind of went in blind because I really had no interest in playing it. So I didn't know the premise at all. I just knew it was a walking sim and I heard good things about it. I just never really had an urge to play it. So how about you, Joshua? It's a similar situation to uh, my experience with Ethan Carter, which is I've sort of seen it from a distance and heard people talk about it. I had a couple friends who were like, oh, hey, this game is really good. You should play it. And it was always something that I knew of, but uh, never played until Jamie made me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Everyone whose name is Tony. It's time for Guess the Metacritic. You're really going to do this to me. It is 4-0. Three times Tony has guessed the Metacritic score on the button. At this point, it's just humiliating. Joshua, what do you think the Metacritic score for Edith Finch is? I don't know. I had a hunch on what it was, but I know my hunches are always wrong. So, I don't know. 87 is probably my hunch. I feel like this is a game that reviewed well. I think it would be higher. I think it probably reviewed higher than Ethan Carter would be my guess. And Ethan Carter was around the low 80s, I think. So I think Edith Finch is probably a bit higher than that. So I'm going to say 87. Okay, Tony. Hmm. I'll say say 85. The Metacritic score for what remains of Edith Finch is... 88. Joshua, yes, you are on the Tony leaderboard. Suck my ass. Yes. <laughs> Eat it. I was yes. expecting that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. And I think a fucking bone. You're welcome. Because I was going to say 87, but I went. I said 85 just to be nice. It's a good thing I went first. What a, what a historic day for PlayStation Rumble. This is, you know, bigger than the Last of Us 1 remake being announced. Which was... Mildly big. Um, <laughs> Josh, so the scores, if you're following, are Tony for Joshua 1. Comeback of the century. Um, but I do want to talk to you about the reception of this game. So I think you are right, Joshua. It did have quite a positive reception. There is a split. There are people who, um, and we're going to hear from them in a moment, who just thought this game was uh, like a bag of dicks. Just thought it was the most useless, <laughs> encompassing object uh, that you could carry around. I have some reviews I want to share with you. Um, the first review is from SciLife, 0 out of 10. And SciLife says, A slow and boring interactive story where the user walks around the house as the narrator delivers on the grotesquely absurd tragic demise of the Finch family. There's absolutely no point to the story. There is no interesting or thought-provoking ending that might justify the pain of having to sit through it. You'll just finish the game with the sensation that you just wasted three hours of your time walking painfully slow through someone's house. This is a laughably pointless, time-wasting experience that tries hard to tear-jerk you and even fails on that. It took me two hours, so this person is really bad at games. (laughs) Slam, Psylife. 
Yeah, no, three hours is un- unnecessarily a long time to go through this game. Uh, I, I it seems negligible, but that's fifty percent longer than than a lot of people took. Yeah, that's like if another game with a relevant time took you a relevant amount of time longer. I can't yeah, that's that's, that's a really good comparison. Um, does this chime with any of you? Not really, no. No, it's just it's one of those things where low reviews when people really don't like something, it's almost as if they take it really personally and attack it to a certain degree where if you like this game, you just suck. And there's no there's no redeeming quality. You shouldn't like this game. You're the problem. I'm really into stand-up comedy and I go and see a lot of shows and there's something definitely where I've been guilty in the past where you're in a room and you're seeing someone who's got a very distinct taste for the first time and the whole room is like belly laughing and you're not laughing. You And, and instead of going... I, don't, I might not get this or it's not to my uh, taste. You just go, this guy's a dick and everyone in this room is a dick. Yeah, you go, uh, uh, everyone, else, everyone else is the problem. It's not me, it's them. That Got it, good. It's the children that are wrong. <laughs> um, and my last review for you is from The Guardian, which is quite a sort of well-established English uh, newspaper, which is giving it 10 out of 10 or 100 score. Wow. What, rem- what remains... Is in- cool. Is cool. <laughs> <laughs> What remains of every episode we've got to squeeze that in. What remains of Edith Finch is a game that succeeds in recreating the childhood joy of reading a book and being utterly transported into its pages, only to reach the end and realise that it's not real. It will touch the hearts of all but the most soulless of gamers. Um, I'm, I'm putting my cards on the table at the moment. That is where I stand with this game. Joshua, can you tell us a little bit about the development and the context of this game? Yeah, so uh, this game was released in December 2017. Uh, 2017 was a slam dunk of a year. That was the year Breath of the Wild came out, uh, Mario Odyssey, Hollow Knight. There were just so many good games that came out that year. I don't know if you guys... 2017 may be the best year in gaming, full stop. Look at a top 50 list. So good. So, so good. That was that was the year the Switch came out, and it was and it was awesome. So um, it was developed by, like I said earlier, Giant Sparrow. Annapurna published it, but the story behind the publishing is actually pretty interesting. So um, the developers first developed the Unfinished Swan in 2012 for PS3. I don't know if you guys played that. I certainly have not. Uh, but a, a year later is when they started development for What Remains of Edith Finch. And they had initially partnered with Sony to release it because Sony used to be more involved with indie developers. And it was actually going to be published by Santa Monica Studio, the, the, the guys that do God of War. But somewhere along the line, Sony changed their relationship with indie developers to where they're, it's, more of a hands-off approach as opposed to really, you know, digging their hands into it. But what happened was the people, some people working at Santa Monica left the studio and they formed Annapurna Interactive, who published What Remains of Edith Finch as their first game after being in development for four years, which I thought was really cool because Annapurna is actually a publisher I'm pretty familiar with um, they focus on more artsy games, but they've got a lot of really good titles. Like uh, The Pathless was theirs, Donut County, The Outer Wilds. I mean, everybody sings the praises of The Outer Wilds. The Artful Escape is theirs. Um, 
Gone Home, Neon White just came out and that's theirs. And the upcoming game Stray is also theirs. Um, I think it's time we get into the gameplay and the story. So you boot up this game, you get the uh, giant sparrow logo, and then you get the what remains of Edith Finch text in white on a black background. And that black background turns into like this uh, view from a boat of uh, a coast. And you think, oh, that's the menu screen. And you sit there for about a minute and go, is it the menu screen? And you move your right analog stick and you realize you're actually in the game. It is just like, bang, you are straight into this game. And I thought that was so effective there's no fat at the beginning of this game yeah it was a it was a really good opening i did i did appreciate that quite a bit how long did you sit there before you realized you could (laughs) look around it was about maybe 30 seconds um it's not the first game i've played where they just kind of go right into the opening so i was sort of mentally in a place where i'm like okay no options are popping up so i'm probably already in the game and i just need to move around in some capacity nonetheless still a really effective way to open a game in my opinion yeah i don't think i waited all that long so i don't i didn't sit there for a minute certainly well i think it's really i i genuinely missed this the first time um there's a lot of foreshadowing in this game and obviously when you're on that boat you are opening up a book and it has uh writings for me to finch a journal um and you also notice that you are holding lilies so you're holding you're on this boat you're holding lilies and you're reading this book which is written by uh, edith finch which is already probably connoting that edith finch is dead and you're reading her book which went by the by for me the first time i played this did either of you pick up on that straight away i didn't no. i totally my first thought was um i was thinking that maybe it was um like something that she was that she had either completed or was in the process of writing and maybe she had the flowers because she was going to she had some kind of sentimental value so it it did not it did not register with me until you just said something about it yeah i'm the same i just thought it was just the beginning of the game she got in a boat to get to her house and then i didn't really put two and two together but i did quickly figure out that she was pregnant how long did it take you guys to figure it out <laughs> a long time until she literally told I, me she was pregnant. yeah i didn't figure <laughs> really? it out until she said something no, I, remember I was walking around and I looked down. So I kind of figured it out. And then she's like, oh, I'm pregnant. I'm like, yeah, I know. I figured it out a long time ago. She said, oh, if I were pregnant, I, I wouldn't be. If I weren't pregnant, I wouldn't. I, I would be doing this, but I am. And it sucks. I'm like, oh, okay. Playing it the second time, I realized there's actually lots of clues. When she's crawling in one of the little crawl spaces, she's like, this was made for someone with bigger hands. Uh, this is made for someone with smaller hands and a smaller belly. Yeah. Um, she says, there's a really obvious bit where you're going through a tunnel and she goes, now that there's just one of us or maybe two like they are hinting mm. at this but um yeah i didn't get that at all at the beginning so once you've once you get past that boat bit you start reading the story the words sort of come up in the environment and you start on this island with edith with the finch family house in the background and you have to walk through these woods to get to the finch family house and they're going to set up how everything you need to know about the gameplay um, and what's striking about this is, as she's narrating, as Edith Finch is narrating to you, her words are coming up in the environment, nearly like augmented reality, mm-hmm. very close to the uh, Sherlock show. Um, if you've ever watched the sort of BBC Sherlock, uh, where it feels like it's a part of the environment. 
I found her narration and the use of text both really effective. I think throughout her narration could have actually been really annoying, but the voice acting is so good uh, that it really striked me. And I thought the text was a really good way to um, imp- like remind the player the whole time that you are reading someone's story. You're not, you're not living it uh, in the now and also marking where the player should go. So I thought those two things were really effective. Yeah, I think it's pretty close to being diegetic. Um, I think the only thing, the only thing better they could have done would be like finding ways to integrate the narration, like in subtle ways in the, in the scenario, but, um, reiterating the fact that this is something that you're reading. I think, I think it works out. I think it shakes out pretty well. I didn't think the text, I know, Jamie, you say it could have gotten annoying. I think even if they did more of it, I think it was done such a way that it, um, never gotten away and never felt like it was in your face. Like you could look away, you could still walk around and the text could pop up and you could still miss it. Like it was never, it was never so in your face to where it's like, I get it. That's what did a lot of things where sometimes you could miss bits of text. Like in the very beginning, if you're walking and she's talking about the dragon in her front yard, if you don't walk by it, she won't tell you. I think she tells like, she kind of hints at you what happened. So like, yeah, my grandfather tried to build a, uh, dragon, there's like some more dialogue she says, and like, uh, I think I didn't go to the front door. I know if you go to the front door, she says things, she has like another little narrative, you can completely miss that. So, but like, it's not holding your hand completely of the narrative, you can still miss some narrative beats, but otherwise, I thought it was the presentation was pretty spot on. I, th- I think you're right, there's definitely some details that if you don't go looking for them, uh, you won't be re- rewarded by being presented with them. I also think first person, I didn't understand this at first, but I think I, I do now. I think the first person view was really effective for the fact that, I mean, A, it's a walking sim, and walking sims are first person, usually. But secondly, as you are reading someone's story, you are experiencing the story through their interpretation, through their eyes, and you're literally playing this game through their eyes. So I thought that was really effective. The f- one of the first things I noticed in the woods as well is, A, this game is graphically uh, good. I like it. I think this it's very stylistic. It's very well done. Um, but frame rate isn't as good and was quite choppy sometimes. Yeah, I and I'm, I, I believe Tony had the same experience. Uh, he can elaborate more. Um, but it is locked to 30 FPS. And that, yes. that, that was not playing. I hate to be a frame rate snob, but... Um, <laughs> A smoother frame rate is always just just makes for a better experience. I'm sure it dipped under that as well at points. I don't recall it dipping because the the PS5 just kind of brute forces whatever performance a PS4 game has. But um, yeah, 30 FPS, not fun. But stylistically, it looks great. I am not a frame rate snob. As long as it's a stable 30 FPS, it doesn't really bother me. It can still dip, you know, but... Me and uh, Joshua come come from a different breed. (laughs) That we do. So yeah, the first bit of this, you're getting, you're going through the forest, and then you get to the Finch household. The Finch household is bizarre, isn't it? It's like basically a normal house with like loads of weird bits constructed on top of it to sort of extend it and make it go out further. And it's got quite a a distinct silhouette. It kind of reminded me of, and this is going to sound really weird, but the Dracula's Castle from Castlevania where it has a really iconic silhouette and even if it's totally dark and there's no detail you're like oh that's that's Dracula's castle and the house in Ethan Carter gave me a similar vibe where it's such a weird and unnatural looking building that it's unmistakable there are definitely some uh 
building code violations going on now. <laughs> oh, a thousand percent. <laughs> it looks cool, but holy, that could fall. That could that could fall over at any minute. Once we actually find our way into the house, what were your first impressions of the house? I was wondering what the hell happened because you know you're not it's not really you're not really set up to why everyone left the house. I was like, you just see this complete disaster of a house, basically. You later learn it's because they were leaving at the end, but like there's just shit everywhere. I think it's probably worth noting that um, at the beginning, it sort of implied that no one's lived at this house for 17 years since she was a sort of early teen. You're like, you're like, what exactly happened to make them just bail on the place? Yeah, the one thing that I got was it almost had this like suspenseful horror vibe to it because, uh, like Tony said, there was stuff scattered about everywhere. But what really had me wondering was you a lot of the bedrooms were just sealed off like the doors yeah. were just sealed and i'm like okay um with that um, doesn't people. yeah that that doesn't happen uh people don't do that so um <laughs> is that is that not a normal thing not in america at least i don't know how it is in the uk <laughs> but in america we don't do that so and uh it was it was almost unsettling a bit but it, it's weird because the house at least in the in the in the daylight, still had this kind of homey vibe to it. So it wasn't super haunting, but it it, it was a little unsettling at first. There's just like an exceptional amount of detail in this house, and everything's kind of like overflowing. I think um, Edith says uh, at one point, talking about the house, uh, nothing in the house looked abnormal. There was just too much of it, like a smile with too many teeth, and that's such a, a fantastically acute way to describe this house like it, it's just like full up with knickknacks and details a lot of things are foreshadowing there's like uh, cans of fish from the canning factory there's like a million books in this game they all have titles they're all real books and they all thoughtfully chosen books as mm. you'll sort of come to discover later uh so it's like it's like your old nan's house where everything's just like cluttered with knickknacks and bits and stuff like that as josh said uh all the rooms are sealed up and the narration tells us that as each family member died, the grandmother would want to preserve the room by leaving it exactly the same, and the mum wanted to sort of rebel against this. So basically, the grandmother believes in this sort of family curse that's killing off the fa- uh, killing off the family in very elaborate ways, um, and the mum didn't seem very pleased with this. So she started sealing up the room so no one could sort of go into these shrines that the grandmother, Edie, Edith Finch Sr., um, had made, and then the grandmother rebelled by putting... Uh, peepholes in these rooms so you can actually go along and you can see all these rooms um, and that's like our first experience of exploring the house it felt like the leftovers meets like Wes Anderson because it's very mm. dark and foreboding in certain aspects but also like whimsical it kind of felt like I don't know if you guys have seen it but it felt like Knives Out to me yeah where you have this whole family in this big house and you have this one head of the family and who just happens to love mysteries and um, has all these clues and specific things strewn about in the house. So that's that's what it made me think of. We find ourselves going into Walter's room, which we open a book, has a secret lever and allows us to get into Molly's room, one of the people we've seen through the peephole. And Molly was a child in like the late 1930s, early 1940s. We have a little explore around her room and then we see a letter written on uh, on the table. Molly has written this story. And it's our first introduction to how this game's basically going to play. Um, how how did you find the Molly story? Um, this was the point of the game where I still wasn't quite sure 
what was going on or what exactly I was playing. Yeah, so you start with her perspective and you hear her narration from her from her diary or whatever. And she's super hungry. She goes and she's uh, she eats the gerbil food. She eats toothpaste. She thinks about eating her fish. And then you go to the you go to the window and you open it and it stops. And then you turn into a cat and you're hunting a bird. And then you turn into an owl and you're hunting rabbits. And you turn into a shark and you're hunting seals. And then you turn into a tentacle monster and you're hunting people. You're transforming into these things. So it didn't quite click with me what what was happening. And then because um, you're just sort of transforming and she's eating all these different things. So I'm thinking, okay, so does she just have this active imagination is she dreaming? And then you sort of have this, um, the end of her letter, which is sort of like a goodbye. So I'm like, okay, well, she's gone. But I wasn't 100% sure what happened until later in the game as I went through some of the other stories. I'm like, oh, okay. So she was probably, she probably starved is what, is what happened. Tony, how did, what did you think about it? Yeah, I'm not too sure how she died, but it was it was interesting. I think the thing at the end where you're, you're like a Cthulhu monster, and then you can listen to the um, one of the pirates sing his entire song. Yeah, yes. I don't know if you guys did that. I did. Yeah, and it's, you get achieve and you get achievement for it. I kind of got what I, what they were going for because she had mentioned everyone died already. I'm like, okay, so she dies. I was expecting her to like fall a window or something. I don't know, but they never really explained how she died. So I don't know, but still though, I think it was very, very, it's pretty much sets up the mood for the rest of the game. At the beginning of this story, it says that my mom sent me to bed without dinner. I don't know if she's been naughty or whatever, mm. but she's been sent to bed without dinner. And she's like knocking on her door going, mom, I'm hungry. And she's like, go to bed. It's very late. And she eats a, this sort of stale carrot, which is next to some hamster food um, and the toothpaste. But more importantly, she eats berries from an ivy leaf, an ivy tree, an ivy tree, ivy leaf. Which are poisonous. Oh. Okay. Okay. The implication is that she's probably been poisoned by these berries. And it's kind of further confirmed by... There are lots of things in her room. There is a squid uh, sort of soft toy. There is an owl creature. Uh, I think there's a shark. There's Every object she, she kind of hallucinates about is something from her room. And basically, she's writing the story going, I know I'm not going to last much longer. Um, I think she's having a hallucination... She's uh, and th- and this is what's ended up killing her, and that's really important because well, we'll see why later. But one of the first things that has caused one of these deaths is uh, Edith, Grandma Edith, Edie, sort of sending her child to bed hungry with these sort of berries in her room. Um, I thought the end was really beautiful where she sort of, after you stop, stop being the monster, she goes, I don't have long now because the monster is there, and it and I both know that I will be delicious. And I just, at this point, I, I thought gameplay-wise, it was one of the weakest stories, and it was weird that they led with it. I don't know. You got the, you turned to a shark, so that was awesome. <laughs> The shark bit is fantastic. Like, rolling down a hill as a shark. The shark, the shark is awesome. <laughs> Go play Maneater. Let's do it. But the actual ending, that little thing, was uh, I, f- I found really beautiful. We do a bit more traversing through this house, going through sort of secret passages, and we end up in a room that's kind of split in half. It's like two boys' rooms. Um, and one side is uh, sort of fascinated with space and stuff like that. And you go up and you see a space helmet and you read the story, which is written actually by the brother of this boy, 
uh, who who he's sharing a room with, and this is uh, Calvin. Uh, Calvin's story is, I think, one we can all relate to, which is being on the swing as a child um, and wanting to do a full 360, just like go over. Unfortunately, this swing is a homemade swing on a tree, uh, tied to a tree on the edge of a cliff. And you start keep swinging and your mum's calling you in going, it's dinner. And it's told really beautifully. Like the boy who's telling the story, the brother of Calvin is saying, Calvin said he would, um, he would die before he ate another mushroom. And he did. And he always wanted to fly. And I'm not looking at this like a sort of tragedy. I'm looking at this as this is the day he, he ended up flying. But the gameplay of it is you're kind of going back and forth with your two analog sticks going uh, as the swing gets higher and higher all in first person and to end up going 360 and sort of flipping over it and basically getting thrown into the sea you never see that bit you never see any of the deaths but this is one of the bits where the story and the gameplay and the writing just was so succinct and so relatable that i thought it was uh like it, when i played this i was like there's something interesting about this game yeah this is the moment of the game where it started to make sense to me where um it's and a lot of the stories do this where you can sort of see this the narrative set up for the story and you sort of understand how it's going to end you understand what's going to happen but it's sort of the writing and the subtle gameplay where it's building up suspense to that so the moment i'm on this swing and i i'm on the branch and i see the cliff i'm like oh Oh no. And then I <laughs> physically have to swing. And the whole time my my heart's just in my throat as I'm waiting for it to is it you know waiting for it to snap or waiting for him to fall off and you just have to keep going until inevitably you you fly out. And I thought that was really effective. Um it's not super it's not like a challenging gameplay loop or anything, but um in terms of the the gameplay was uh, working in tandem with the writing and the narrative to build up this suspense. And the whole time you're just anticipating this, this, this tragic event and you're, you're essentially forced to you're in control of this boy. You have to do it. Um, but it's, it's going to end horribly for you. It is one interesting bit of that story where it's uh, the bird is saying, you know, maybe if the wind didn't pick up, maybe this is not, it probably wouldn't have happened. And he was like, you know, it probably still would have happened. Like, it was inevitable that he was going to do this. You explore the house a little bit more, and you go into Robert's room, who was a former child star. And, you know, so Eden has mentioned before how, you know, of all of her family members, the first one everyone used to ask about is Barbara, because she was this, you know, young, up-and-coming, kind of like a Shirley Temple type of thing, only she's in, like, monster movies that, um... Assuming when she grew up, her career kind of plummeted. Um, she mentions how her grandmother didn't like speaking of, she didn't really talk about her, but she goes in her room and she finds this comic book that was like a story of her death. So she's, it's kind of like, um, Tales from the Crypt or, um, Creep Show and stuff like that. So she opens the comic book and then you go to this comic book and it's like a horror movie. You're reading the page, going through the panels. You know, she's like, you know, she's supposed to have a comeback. She's supposed to go to a convention where she's like the big attraction. But she hasn't screamed in so long. She's with her boyfriend, who's kind of like her manager, trying to get her to scream again. And then her father hurts, hurts himself. And so her mother was taking her father to the hospital because her father cut himself on the buzzsaw. 
And so she takes you to take care of her little brother. And then all of a sudden, um, you hear on the TV and the radio, you hear announcements of a of a prowler in the, in the, in the local area. And it kind of sets things up to where you hear a noise in the back and then, uh, in the basement. And then she tells you how to get into the basement because one of the big things is Eden mentioned earlier was, Oh, I can't go in there. My mom doesn't want me in there. So of course the key, the, cause her mom gave her a key for the house. So of course the key isn't in there. My mom never wanted me to go in the basement. And so, so it gives you a hint of where to go. It's a, and it's in the, um, in the music box. And so her boyfriend goes down there and it says, you know, her boyfriend was missing for 20 minutes. So she's like, oh, shit. So she goes down there with like a weapon, like a bat. And then the Halloween music starts playing. And all the time you're still like, it's it's literally like you're reading a comic strip book, isn't it? You're just going from panel to panel. And then suddenly, yeah, you're playing it. Yes. Which I thought was a really nice transition. Yeah, it was really cool. I was stoked when I heard Halloween music. I was like, <laughs> yeah, that was cool. That must have been most of the budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't imagine what that cost to get that music in there. But yeah, um, so yeah, so you're going downstairs and it's still like, you still have the narrator, the crypt keeper saying, you know, she goes downstairs. Well, what's down there? She's looking for her boyfriend and you're walking around. She opens the closet and he jumps out to scare her and she screams and he's like, that does it. And she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> and, <she's, laughs> and so she kicks him out and keeps his crutch just to fuck with him. And then she turns around and the actual serial kill is behind her. The entire rest of the narrative is she goes upstairs to look for her brother because she can't find him. But she has this guy chasing her with the Halloween music playing again. She pushes him over the balcony. She goes downstairs and much like a night horror movie, he's gone. And then she starts hearing, you know, a bang on her door. She runs to the door. And then she hears something behind her and she turns around. And it's all the monster movies the yeah. monsters from the movie she was in. So you have to narrow the entire time saying, building up saying, no, this is a performance of her career, her big comeback. And then she turns around and she sees all these monsters and she kind of, I think in the picture, she kind of smiles. Am I wrong? I think she does her famous scream at this point, doesn't she? She literally goes, ah! Yeah, I think so. Then it goes on and uh, the narrator says, you know, how the monster said she had the performance of her career. And then what really happened was her brother was hiding under his bed and she disappeared, the boyfriend disappeared, and all that was left behind was her ear in the music box. I thought that was such a clever way to... So, like, when you first get into the house, you see the music box, and you can, like, play the song on it. Um, and it was, like, made by the grandpa, and, like, this thing pops out and starts dancing. And when you're doing this, when you're reading this comic book, you realise that if you keep winding the music box, actually that piece that you're winding comes out as a key for the basement, which was locked before. And that's such a clever way to sort of progress the story within the narrative of these sort of deaths. I think she also, I think, I think she also mentions how her mom never liked her playing with the music box. Yes, she does. So there's so much thought given throughout this whole story. And I also thought like the visual style of the comic book was like on point. Um, and when you start taking over and playing as it, it was, uh, it was just like really cool. This was the, f like when I, when I, after I played this story, I was like, I'm completely on board for the rest of this game. I think it was my, um, favorite part of the game just because I'm a big 70s, 80s, 90s horror fan. And so, and of course it was just really cool. Just the fact that they used the Halloween music and it wasn't like, I thought it was going to be a knockoff. Because there's a lot of times they'll, they'll do like the first keys just to say, oh, this is what it's supposed to be. 
No, it was actual fucking music, which was blew me away because I'd never expected that from a small indie game. So I do like the story, but um, the one thing that I still don't understand is how she died. I'm not really sure what that ending meant. So my first thought was the boyfriend has killed her because also the boyfriend goes missing after this event as well. If you listen to the, so when she goes to look for Walter, her little brother, to make sure her brother's okay in all this sort of chaos, or the radio goes, two things. It says uh, something about the sort of convention that's going on, this horror convention, which she's missing because she's babysitting. And it says, and this just in, a uh, ban of cannibals are in the area. So I think the, f- the first thing you're supposed to initially think is the boyfriend has kind of done this to her. But the second idea which is also floated is there's basically like a band of literally cannibals who have sort of um come in so the idea that this man with the hook which i thought first meant the man with the crutch her boyfriend um is actually separate from the monsters and this intruder came into the house he also went missing after this story so he he left he was eaten by the cannibals and then these cannibals came in and at her and that's why her ears left there and that's why she said um, or why it's narrated that she looked at them closer and saw what sort of monsters they were and what was about to happen. Mm. That seems to be the most competent explanation I can find, but it, it is left into interpretation. That's an interesting take, but why would they leave her ear in the music box? Just for shits and giggles, no, wouldn't you? <laughs> Top three deaths for me, this one. Very stylized, very well done. So then, so you keep going uh, through the through the basement, and you end up finding this secret passage to this space that's underneath the house, and you find that Walter, the 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 little brother of Barbara, uh, sort of disappeared after she died, and he ended up not going far. Edith makes that very clear, and he ended up going to the secret place under the house, and he lived there for thirty years, I think he said. So you you go through this segment where he's sort of this routine. He wakes up by his alarm clock. You've got this big rumbling outside. He eats a can of peaches, you know, rinse and repeat for God knows how long. The way they show time passing by having the markings on the calendar and then the music relevant to the time on the radio was, was such a good way of like uh, staging those bits of life. Because I think he was there for pretty much all his life. I think he came out in like 2000 and something. Mm-hmm. And I and I didn't I didn't I actually didn't pick up on that. That's a really good observation, Jamie. So eventually he gets up and there is no rumbling outside, and he sort of decides that you know what I don't want to live under here anymore. I'm going to leave, and he busts through the wall, comes out at this train tunnel, and he and he sort of says to himself, um, you know, I just want to live my life, even if it means. You know, he's been, he's obviously believing in some, this curse. And he sort of says, you know, even if I have only a month or a week, you know, it's worth it to go out there. And it turns out just one more day. Yeah, it's just one more day. And it turns (laughs) out he only has one more minute because the train comes right at him and just plows him. There's such a cruel sense of irony here. Oh my gosh. Yes. I don't know why he busted through the door. Can he go back through the house? (laughs) I guess he just didn't want to face the family. I don't know. 
this is another time where Edith has, like Grandma Edith, Edie, uh, seems to be borderline responsible here for uh, someone's life, someone's sort of poor life, because she has enabled him living under the house Mm -hmm. for for his whole life. And she's the only one who kind of knows is doing this in secret. And we'll come to it later. But when you get to Edith's, Edie's room later, there's a newspaper clipping where it says mole man, uh, rumored mole man living on the house. And she reports on it. Uh, so she's kind of like, it's nearly like she's glorifying these deaths. She's really wanting public approval for these deaths or mm. um, like making them legends that there's this like mole man. But actually it's a member of her family who's, who needs obviously intervention yeah, it was like her husband who was he it was the dragon playground that fell that killed him and she and Edith remarks oh she said she always said he was killed by a dragon. So she is kind of yes. in this correct. theatricality of the of the of the dramatic irony of the family deaths. After Walter's death, we travel a bit further through the house. This is still in the main bit of the house. And we actually get to Edie's room, and Edie's room is really interesting because it's got lots of lots of uh, documents of these uh, deaths. It's got like newspaper clippings and stories. But we actually get to find the origin story of this family, which is that they travelled from Norway in a boat which contained their whole house uh, to America to to settle in America in the sort of nineteen thirties. And this was with uh, Edie's father, Odin who ends up sinking quite close to the coast of America in this houseboat. And I think you're really being hinted at now that actually these stories are interpretations because there's literally a picture of a whole fucking house on a boat and that's not (laughs) physically possible. And um, obviously Odin, you know, the sea, it's not the most subtle of, uh, of subtext. In the game, you still can see the house in the distance. And they also mention... That the the fireplace was built with some of the bricks from the house. Uh, yeah, so the, the house didn't completely submerge. It's still sort of peeking out of the water, this memorial. After Walter's death, you actually go outside the house and you go to the graveyard just before going to Edie's room. And Edith says uh, the family graveyard was built before the house. That's how important it is, sort of memorializing the mm-hmm. sort of death and the deaths of these people. But after we learn about water, we go through to Sam's room. And I really like when you go into Sam's room, uh, Edith says, Sam was a bit like uh, Edie. They were both a bit overly strong characters. And you walk into this room and there's this huge bear rug on the floor. It's like quite a nice uh, sort of cinematic moment. And I know you said it wasn't like a film, but I think there are these sort of really cinematically timed moments with the music and the environment. Yeah, they do really well with dramatic timing in terms of how they pace the dialogue versus where you are in the game and how you progress. So, um, yeah, they they do really well at sort of timing things where you get the full impact or they have these reveals that coincide with the dialogue. So, yeah, totally in agreement. It's a little like a magic trick unfolding. Yeah. Sam's death isn't one of the most interesting um although the way it's told is quite cool so you're looking through uh pictures because sam is a photographer and he's taken his daughter out hunting and as you're looking through these pictures as edith uh the story's going on and you're telling the story by being 
by actually taking these pictures that Edith's looking at. So you've got the view of a camera and you have to focus in with Sam taking his daughter on this hunting trip and you're clicking on the important moments that become the pictures that Edith is then seeing to recreate the story. Yeah, visually it was visually it was really cool. Yes, although it took me a hot minute to, <laughs> to clock. <laughs> uh, and quite a simple story. He takes her hunting and there's a bit of this story about like how he's saying... You know, you don't have to do anything you don't want to, but if you want to survive, you you know, you're going to have to sort of take, you know, take charge of your life. She ends up shooting a deer. They go to take a photo on top of uh, a mound where she shot this deer and this deer is not completely dead. Bucks him. He falls off. He's dead. Poor Sam. And it happens as soon as the timer went off on the, on the, on the camera. Yes. Great, great timing. Yes. The, nothing, nothing is... Edith, the story of Edith Finch's family is nothing if not dramatically ironic. Yeah, and borderline comical at times. And well documented. Borderline, yeah, absolutely. And well documented, yes. <laughs> now we're going further up into the house. It's getting a bit more DIY and constructed. Yeah, this, this is where the safety evaluations come in. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and the next story is of Gregory, who is a baby um, in a bath. And this is one of the most controversial stories in the game. Um and the way it's told is through this divorce letter with her husband talking to Edith um, as they're getting a divorce. He's, he's written this divorce letter. Edie, not Edith, right? Sorry, Edie, yes, the grandmother. And then it zooms into you being uh, Gregory, sorry, not George, Gregory, in the bath. Um, this one hits very hard because obviously, you know, this child is going to die. The mother is sort of tending to the child, but gets a phone call, gets sort of taken away. And even though she's unplugged the bath, you are kind of controlling these sort of toys in the bath, like this toy frog and these sort of letters. And uh, you're doing it as if you're kind of like, it's your imagination. You're playing with these things in the bath, but you're imagining coming to life, synchronized swimming. Um, and you hit something, which means the tap goes on again and that bath fills up and then you die as as, as a baby. Um, in this sort of segment where you go underwater and you're like, you are one of the toy frogs and you end up going down the sink. Mm -hmm. All to the time of this sort of waltz, very sort of classic, beautiful music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So they've really, it's a real juxtaposition of like synchronized swimming and sort of very classical music and very hopeful talking of this father saying, I know he was a happy boy. He could see other things that we just couldn't see. Um, but with this very grim story of a, a small boy dying in the bath. What makes that one so effective because of how realistic it was? Because you hear it all the time of something that happens where parent accidentally leaves a child like in their car or they leave him in the bath because the phone rings because even the father says you know it feels like it's his fault because if he didn't call he makes to be alive yeah totally right and it and it definitely it's another one of those stories where once i started it and sort of understood where 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 gregory was i was like oh <laughs> there is that so this is what's gonna happen but i just have to play it out and build up the suspense to this thing. Um, yeah, it was very tragic, very sad. But this weird, just almost this weird beauty to it with yeah. how they have this, you play with the toys and you have this synchronized swimming. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. <laughs> they sort of they sort of soften the blow a bit. And, and a fantastic depiction of what it's like being a child and having this imagination run wild with all these little objects and stuff like this. So the criticism of this game is basically that's really untasteful. Why are you depicting a child's death? Why are you, um, maybe the way it's done? I've had a lot of 
parents on the internet sort of saying this totally threw me off this game this was actually a bridge too far i don't think that it's inappropriate in any capacity because um it's depicting something that happened that something that happens and it's not being disrespectful it's not playing it lightly it's not playing it as a joke and it's not it's not fetishizing anything involving a child it's not you know it would be it, it's sort of like um what was that netflix movie that came out a couple of years ago and it was i forget what it was called but it had like a children dancing and it was very provocative in nature and people were saying exactly that it was what you're talking about. very 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 distasteful and very inappropriate because of the way it was depicting these these children um but i don't think edith finch falls into that trap because not only is it narratively consistent with how the game is set up and you know sort of echoes a lot of the tragedy but it's it paints this event in um you know, you have these adults sort of coping with the fact that this happened by saying he was very imaginative, you know, he he could see things the others couldn't, and he was super happy. So I don't I don't think it was in poor taste. I think it was um definitely a a choice and um I respect them for sticking to it and handling it in the way that they did. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it was it was done for a point. Cause like I guess like I mentioned earlier, like Joshua mentioned, stuff like this happens, like a kid swinging on a swing and then swing too high and flying off of it. Or um a girl a, a child eating something that poisons them. This is like very thin it didn't take they didn't take it lightly. Yeah. Well then the next one that happens is Gus, and the way you see this is you're in this nursery and that's where you see Gregory and you've got this little memorial in his crib. And then you go to the next bed over and that's where you see Gus and you see this poem. And I think it was written by Edith's mother. You open this poem and you read this and you read about um, Gus and what happened. And you go to his perspective. There's a wedding happening outside on the Island and he's not interested at all. in what's happening He's just flying his kite while the ceremony's going. They try to get him in for pictures and he just flips the bird, gives him the middle <laughs> finger. And you're and the whole time you're flying this kite, um, the narration is happening in these letters and sometimes the letters are backwards or sometimes they're all jumbled. And you have to fly the kite through them to get them. You're actually controlling this kite, aren't you? You're controlling the kite and so you have to get the letters to flip or you get the letters to follow you as the kite goes around. Um, they move to the reception, which is in this uh, large tent. And all the while there's a storm and they're, they're at the beach and the storm is getting worse. And you can see like the waves and the, and the wind and the rain and the party goers are like, eh, we don't care. And then eventually the, the big party tent, you know, flies up in the air and you've got the party tent flying around all the chairs and the decorations all flying around. And then it ends with the, the, party tent flying toward Gus and then it and then it fades to black that's the end of his that's the end of his line um it's not how I definite it's not how I thought it was gonna end um 
I thought that maybe it w- he was going to be struck by lightning because he was flying the kite in the storm. But I guess maybe there was just this big windstorm and he got hit by uh, the tent and or some something to that effect. Well, I imagine since he's a child, he probably got like flung. I don't know how big. The, yeah, I don't know how big of what big of a summer it was, but if it's you know lifting up tents and stuff, it's got to be pretty powerful. Yeah, and if and if the kite and if the kite got swept and he yeah. held on to it, then he could have been you know taken up. But Jamie probably has the real answer. I do so know. Right? I just do give know it to we'll us. <laughs> Although I didn't get this totally on the first time, and I did have to look this up. So uh, as the storm picks up as you said this tent uh like flies up and you're you're controlling it with your kite in the sort of fantasy of the story but actually like this tent gets thrown up and it does come towards you and what what is right next to you is a totem pole Mm -hmm. and you don't really see it but it comes up to the totem pole and it goes to white and then when you're actually stepping outside after walter's death you actually go out into the graveyard what you see is that same bit of land with the totem pole knocked over Mm-hmm. So the implication is the tone pool was knocked over and hit um, Gus. Oh, but I mean, I mean, there's lots of possible solutions. That that's not necessarily the, the definitive answer. What I did really like about this is it was just another example of really good storytelling. Like the poem was actually really strong and had a really good cadence yeah. to it. It it worked with every bit of visual that was going on, and um, and I've never played anything like that in any game. And you can obviously, a lot of people can relate to being a child at a wedding. You don't want to be yeah. Oh fuck off! For, wanna... <laughs> for for a family, for uh, adding a family member that you don't like. Yeah, <laughs> I think everybody's been there. Uh, it was one of those things where I'm like, you know what? I don't really fault Gus for doing what he did. It's like a lot, of, like a lot of these stories. It really comes down to um, negligence or ignorance from the authority figures. What I really like after this bit is then you start climbing out of the main house and the extension of the house, and it becomes this need like DIY treehouse effect where there's lots of like platforms raised on like uh, on the branches, like a greenhouse stuck there, um, and then you come up to this like nearly like uh, lighthouse looking thing, and we find out about Milton. Mm-hmm. Tony, how did you find Milton? Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, so Milton, I know from what I can remember, you're going up the side of the Jimmy house that's going to collapse at any second, it feels like. And you climb into his window, I believe. Ethan's talking about how he just disappeared and no one really knows what happens to him and throughout the game. Her mom's usually pessimistic, but for her brother, she always never gave up hope that he was still alive. And you know, it was, you'd, you found the, you'd see the missing flyers around the house, you know, and it was brought up every once in a while. In, in subtle ways. So, and Edith goes into his room, climbs to the window, and she finds his flipbook. And it's the longest flipbook I've ever seen in my life because she just. <laughs> it's an impossibly long flipbook. So <laughs> it just. It's called, the, I think, The Disappearing Magician or something like that. I can't remember the name of it. And she's just flipping it. And then you see his little 30 second cartoon of his magician doing his thing or with his paintbrush, right? Oh, the, yeah, um, the magic paintbrush. And then she's flipping through and you see, like, uh, drawings, the drawing um, expanding and being drawn. If that's the best way to explain it. As the book is being flipped and you see the, and you see her brother becoming the cartoon character in the flip book. And then as he's animated, he's painting something, walks into it, painting like a hole. 
or like a portal, I guess. And then he... Yeah, like a door, like a sort of Looney Tunes yeah. kind of door where they paint it and open it up. He walks into it and then paints it and it closes and that's the end of the story. That's what we get about Milton, isn't it? I was expecting him to pop up or something, but I guess I guess the implication is maybe he fell off the tower or something and into the water. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, they do They do say, or Edith says that, um, I th- she made a comment about how her mother, I think, partially blamed Edie for Milton's disappearance because of the lighthouse room. Oh. I believe. So that that was my guess too. This is the one that there's the least amount of certainty, particularly on the internet, uh, fan base about. Uh, the cool things to note here is that flick book is kind of actually like a real flick book. Like you can control the speed of it. You can literally go page by page and it is literally all of these pages drawn out. And the second thing to note is that it is uh, got strong ties to the Unfinished Swan. It's basically the the king from the Unfinished Swan. I haven't played the Unfinished Swan, but um, I'm reliably told that that is the case. Um, but there's no sort of meta universe kind of, you know, Marvel thing going on here. There's uh, they, There isn't like a, a through line. It's just a bit of a, a wink to their older game. The Edith Finch cinematic <laughs> universe. <laughs> We're all waiting for it. Um, Nick Fury shows up after the end credits. <laughs> Walks up to Edith Finch, says, I'm here to talk to you about the Annapurna Initiative. And then, like, it's getting very DIY, the house now. We're basically going up, like, a, a ramp, which ends up which ends at a speedboat, which has been turned into a room, basically. And you go through the window, and we get to Lewis. Uh, Lewis is Edith's brother. Not only is this by far the most notable, probably best part of this game but also the character I related to the most. You go in, he's like got quite sort of trippy stuff on the walls. He likes playing video games. Uh, she says there's a very distinctive smell in the room, obviously referring to sort of <laughs> cannabis because there's this sort of cannabis leaves. Yeah, it legalized marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know exactly what kind of person he is. Uh, yes, yeah, we all we all know. Uh, we all know. A we Lewis. all know. A Lu- we all know a Lewis. He plays video games and he's terrible at them. You know, <laughs> kind of like a certain somebody. Um, one really moving moment, this whole thing is really moving, um, but one really mo- moving moment is when they touch upon the sort of, it looks like a SNES or what we in Britain correctly call mm-hmm. the SNES um, machine. And he, she says he was never, very, we always used to play games together. He was never, never very good. He died a lot. And when you're struggling with things like depression or anxiety, it can just sometimes feel like you're dying a lot. And I think that was really purposefully, but very subtly sort of placed in there. Mm. His story is written in the form of a therapist note who had been seeing him that has been written to his mother after his death. And it says, uh, I think the problem started soon after we saw him when he took up this job. And suddenly you're presented with him in first person in this fish canning factory. And his job in the fish canning factory is to take one fish with his right hand, put it under the sort of little fish guillotine and then throw it back onto the line where it goes up for the next part of processing and you are you have to do that with your right analog stick by literally moving your right analog stick uh, or your hand to the fish putting it to the guillotine and then pushing it up so that's all with the right analog stick and the left analog stick you are controlling basically uh, what becomes his rep the representation of his imagination which is him imagining this sort of fant- uh, fantastical world that he is uh, the protagonist in kind of like a video game and it starts with just being a little image on the corner of the left hand side of the screen it also like 
It's, so it's depicting his mental health and how he's sort of starting slipping into this uh, fantasy world rather than the real world. And they depict that by going through the stages of console gaming. So it starts with an 80s, top-down, black-and-white uh, environment that you're exploring with your left stick while you're also doing these fish. Then it starts going into colour detail, which is the next stage literally in console gaming. And that shows the progression not only of console gaming, uh, but his... Uh, sort of slip into this imagination he's going he's exploring he found this quite powerful while he's doing this monotonous job and then it kind of goes into an isometric view so it's literally going through the chronology of gaming as a metaphor for the advancement of his mental health disease and the entire time it's just blocking more and more of the real world the story of it is him as an explorer going through these lands, becoming more powerful, getting elected for mayor. He starts to realise that because he's in control of these fantasies, he can do what he wants. Um, how how are you finding that juxtaposition of playing this basically computer game that's getting more involved and gutting these fish? So for me, this was my favourite story in the game. Um, I so I actually really liked the gameplay loop of you're cutting these fish, but you're also uh, doing this other thing on the left side. And um, this is this is one of those moments where they're using the the medium of gaming to to help uh, sell this this story, and they handle it really well. Where you're doing the exact same motion on the right stick the entire time, but the the part you're paying attention to is his imagination. And so you're sort of moving through and it takes more effort because you have to pay attention and you have to look there. Whereas you can just kind of do the cut the fish, use the right analog stick at the same time. So I thought that was extremely well done. Um, and that really helped sell what's going on in Lewis's head. And for me personally, I definitely relate to I think most of us relate to being at a job where you just, it just drains your soul and you're just there and your heart's not in it, your mind's somewhere else. And it just make any sort of, any sort of depression or anxiety that people have in jobs like that. It just makes it worse. Totally, totally understand it. Masterfully executed. Uh, my favorite part of the game. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably one of my favorite parts. Uh, I love the music. It felt very Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy, and he, they nailed it. I also thought the narration was really beautiful as well. It's like about this person who's like slowly becoming more involved. And the therapist said that she went to the, uh, his boss and showed concerns about Lewis. But the boss said, he, look, he's a model employee now. He's, he's hitting targets better than anyone else. He's basically a drone, and that's what, what this job is about. Um that's so relatable. That's so, <laughs> re that's a, no, I mean, that's a really relatable thing that we hear a lot about, especially now with, um, since the shift to remote work because of, uh, the pandemic, a lot of corporations have been trying to integrate people back into the office or, um, put cameras so that in people's homes so that they can watch people because all they're concerned about are numbers and productivity and, uh, saving as much money as possible and making as much money as possible and at the at the harm of the workers and um yeah that that i think that element of it really comes through in lewis's story as well the next bit of evolution of his fancy is the sort of 
split branches where you can have these sort of choices. You can go, you can save the queen, you can save the king. You're going along, it's getting a bit more involved, and then it turns into a third-person action-adventure game where you're going through to this sort of higher peak of the kingdom. I think at some point the therapist said it become a game to him at this point, just really trying to sort yeah. of stump that in. And then the last part is you literally it becomes first person and you you go through the cannery see yourself as if you're literally literally beside yourself you're no longer mm. that person um and all and the you time you walk past and you walk past yourself too you do now i don't know about you guys but the whole time i was thinking this guy dies because he cuts his arm off in this guillotine when he's not paying attention so the whole time i'm trying to like not cut <laughs> yeah. my arm off as if i could avoid yeah. the death happening i figured i figured that it had to do with the guillotine in some in some capacity yeah i definitely thought i was going to bleed out what actually ends up happening is you go past onto the conveyor belt and he imagines this as him going through this big final kingdom where he's going to be crowned he goes up sees his queen and it says the only thing left was to rest his head and you rest your head to have the crown on you. But actually it is this massive guillotine and your head's chopped off. And obviously the implication being here that he uh, died in the canning factory having this fantasy. The Once the once he got up there, well, you go past the conveyor belt, you get to the king. And I was like, this is cool. I almost want a game about this. <laughs> and then you get to the top and they say the only thing that was left for, was to bend down and take it. I was like no no don't make me do this and they just they they hit you they hit you with that when he goes first person i don't know if you guys noticed but the walkway is the conveyor belt yes that's really cool i kind of saw what was going to happen like earlier on i was like all right he's on the something if he's if he's gonna chop his hands off he's gonna something else is gonna happen like in the factory and then when you start marching towards the queen or the princess i was like all right he's gonna get his head cut off or something like something. And then yeah, sure enough, he gets his, he gets crowned. I genuinely think this is one of the very few examples where I would show to someone who doesn't game, say, this is what games can do in narrative that no other medium can do. Every single thing that's going on is there to involve you in the story and to sort of tell the story in a way that only games can do. And it is, it's obviously the showstopper. It's near the end of the game. Absolutely amazing. It's definitely um, a good argument for game as being art because that particular scene is in itself a form of art. After this, there's basically a flashback to the last night that Edith and her mother and her grandmother were in this house. They're having dinner. They're arguing because the mum is saying, we're leaving this house. The nursing home's going to come for you tomorrow. And this is right after Lewis's death, chronologically. Edie's drinking and the mum's like, you know, you're not supposed to mix your meds with the drink. This is bad. Edie sends Edith off and she says, I've got a present for you in the hallway. The, the adults have to argue now, you know. You take this present, which is a key, which gets you through to the library, the only room you haven't been in the house. And it's Edie's story. And Edie's story is that there's a storm one night. On the night that um, Edith was born, 
there was a storm. It was the lowest tide. Oh, there's an earthquake in the middle of the ocean. It was the lowest tide in a thousand years, supposedly. And the house, the old house, gets uh, is basically on land now. And she starts to walk out for it. Uh, you're doing this as Edie. Uh, you get turned around. It's all a bit black and white. You get to the house. And she said, there was something here that you need to know that, I, I, you know, something that I could not explain. And you're looking at the old house basically in this seabed and the light goes on and then it gets cut out because your mum rips the book away from you. You get thrown in the car the next morning and you're taken away uh, to your new home. And Actually, wasn't it that night? Because it was supposed to leave the next day and then she got to argue. They got to argue because Edie didn't want to leave. Yes, no, right you were. So she's taken away that night and Edith says that's the last time we saw Edie. And I think that probably the strong implication here is that she... Uh, she didn't want to leave the house. She was going to live there till she died and she probably mixed her mm-hmm. alcohol with her meds uh, to kill herself rather than going to a nursing home. Um, right. Also, at the beginning of the game, Edie's room is sealed up with a peephole. Who put that there? Well, that's a, a little bit of food <laughs> for thought. Um, but the end game is basically you going off with your mother, your mother getting very sick, uh, maybe some something terminal. She ends up dying. And then you go on as a 17-year-old to start writing the story because you become pregnant. We get this very end scene of a baby in a womb getting pushed out and quite an emotional bit of dialogue about saying, I I kind of... She's had this whole conflict the whole way through of saying, maybe I shouldn't even tell you these stories. Maybe this should all end with me. And at the end, she says, I hope you never end up reading this book because I want to meet you and tell you these things in person. Um, and if you're reading this book, that means that hasn't happened. And then you see Edith's son on the island next to the house putting flowers on her grave in the family cemetery. Yeah, that was that was quite the ending punch. She goes back and, you know, learns about all this history only to then become a part of this family history in the way that she tragically dies. And it sort of leaves a bleak ending, you know, for her son. Is her son going to meet the same fate? How much time does he have left? That, <laughs> those are the kinds of those are the kinds of questions that I was thinking about after the game was done. I didn't really see it as bleak, in the sense that these are stories that were deserved to be told. That her mother was withholding for whatever reason for her own grief, and her grandmother, for the most part, even in a fairy tale way, wanted her family to know what happened because that's your family history is important. So she felt like it was important to be told. For all I know, they have a, a history of mental health that needs to be figured out. Edith sounds like a very capable person despite all of her family trauma. But regardless, it feels like these are stories that are important. To, the history is important for whatever reason, for one reason or another. It is important. Her mother is suppressing it. Her um, Her grandmother even though as whimsical as she made them, she may have intentionally done so so the kids can learn what it is in a more light way instead of saying, oh, you know, your great-granduncle drowned or whatever, or your 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 granduncle fell off a cliff. Either this mother did not want to talk about it, but her grandmother did. And that was a huge conflict throughout the game. I'd love to hear your final thoughts. Tony, what's your final thoughts and rating for this game? I enjoyed it. It's very enjoyable. I'm not a big fan of the walking simulator. Uh, This is definitely what Ethan Carter wished it could be in terms of 
story and its execution. This told some of the story through the environments. You got half the story was the storytelling. The other half was the environments. You could look around and see so much in such a short amount of time. This game was technically only two hours long, if that. But there's so much story packed into this game and so much environmental details. It was very effective, very well done. You know, I would recommend it. I give it a solid eight. A good example of interactive art. Um, Jamie, when you were talking to me about this game, you pitched it to me as Ethan Carter, but better. And <laughs> I, I stand by that. Having played it, um, not only do I agree with you, but I almost feel like I rated Ethan Carter too high because <laughs> I gave Ethan Carter a seven. And um, thinking about what score I would give Edith Finch, um, I keep coming back to an eight. I think eight is what the game deserves. But at the same time, I'm like, man, it's not it's not one point difference between Edith Finch and Ethan Carter. The gap is much wider than that. So uh, I am gonna stick with an eight just just for consistency. I am I am with Tony in the sense that I I'm not a huge fan of walking simulators, but. Um, I think the game succeeds a lot better at what it's trying to do. It doesn't go out of its way to tell you, hey, th we're not like other games. Because it just lets the game speak for itself. And uses the medium of a game to tell a better story than Ethan Carter ever told. And um, even without the comparison to Ethan Carter, I it's, it's a pretty strong narrative on its own. So, um, yeah, 8 out of 10. Um it's the game that started me wanting the podcast. It's a game that I've consistently thought about and wanted other people to play. I'm giving this game, if I was being objective, I would probably say somewhere between eight or nine out of 10, but subjectively and the score I'm going to give it is 10 out of 10 because this game made me feel and not a huge amount of games at all ever really make me do that to the, to the degree that this game did. I really think everyone should play it. What remains of Edith Finch is good. Well, with that being said, that takes us to the end of this episode of PlayStation Rumble. Our next game, as a reminder, will be Ape Escape for the PS1. You can find us on Twitter at PS Rumble. You can also drop us an email with your questions, complaints, comments, concerns, what have you, at PlaystationRumblePodcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for listening and hope to see you next time. See ya. Goodbye. It's time for Guess the Metacritic. It's going to be Joshua to go first. What do you think the PS4 Metascore Critic... What do you think the Metacritic score game... What... Do... No, I'll wait. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me clap. It's stupid. <laughs> <laughs>